Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Hazel. Good to have you on the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been excited to have you on the show because you were such a great panelist and speaker at the Entrepreneur First internal meetings and everything. And I really wanted to go deep into your story for the benefit of not just the listeners, but also myself. Oh, thank you so much. No, absolute pleasure. I'm always happy to make a new friend and and uh, speak publicly about my journey so far. So for those who don't know you yet, how would you introduce yourself professionally? Absolutely. So for those who don't know me, my name is Hazel Savage. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Musio, an artificial intelligence startup for the music industry. My background more specifically, I've been working in music tech for about 15 years. So my very first job when I was in the UK, I used to work at HMV, the record store, uh, just working on a Saturday and Sunday whilst I was at university earning a bit of beer money. And uh, after I left university, I went full time at Shazam. And I've since worked at Universal Music, Pandora, and then I started Musio three years ago. So I've uh, been in the music uh, tech industry for a long time. I, I don't think anyone else would, uh, would have me now. <laughs> That's amazing. And I love the fact that you're just a founder in the music space. It's such a breath of fresh air. Everyone's tackling like another e-commerce company and you're fresh. Yeah, you're right. It's not super common. And especially I know we're both based in Singapore, but it's not super common for this part of the world as well. There are tech incubators in LA and London that's just focus on music technology like Techstars Music or Abbey Road Red in London. And so that you get real hubs of music tech startups in those locations. But, you know, certainly when we started in Singapore, we were the only one, you know, and I was even uh, chatting today with them. Um, with some of the guys I work with saying our lead investor is not a music tech investor. You know, they invest in fintech, medtech, biotech, fish tech. There's a lot of other great deep tech companies being built in Asia and Singapore specifically, but we might be the only music tech uh, VC funded company. We were certainly the first. There might be some others by now. <laughs> well, we'll definitely go into a little bit about what you're tackling for sure at a startup levels very soon. Is this that for me, I just got to ask, how did you fall in love with music? Yeah, great question. I think most people, I've always been a, a big fan of music. You know, my parents both love music and listen to a lot of music. They're both pretty rock and roll as well. I got rock and roll parents, which is always fun. This is kind of the story that got me the job at Pandora. But when my dad was at university in Birmingham, the house band was Black Sabbath. So my dad used to go down to the student union every sort of Friday or whatever day it was. And Black Sabbath used to play every Friday. So my dad's always been a big fan of the rock and, and metal. And, you know, my mum's a huge music fan as well. So I kind of grew up in a, in a house surrounded by music fans, although not necessarily musicians. And then I got a guitar for my 13th birthday. I was just like, oh, this sounds like a good idea. And I was not very good for a long time, but I really, really stuck at it. And, and I still play guitar although I'm still not very good but uh but you know so I have a real passion for playing 
have a real passion for performing live. I come from a family of people who all love music. And so, you know, when I was kind of figuring out what am I, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do for my career? It made sense to focus on something that I was dedicating nearly all my time to. You know, I ended up doing loads of things tangentially related. I was playing in a band. I was managing other bands. I was running club nights. I was like handing out flyers for other people's club nights, like running guest lists. And and I just thought, you know, take this and turn it into a career. That's kind of where it started, at least. Amazing. And I can imagine that consuming and enjoying music and playing music is very different from working in the music industry, right? Which you very quickly discovered. So I'd love to know more a little bit about it because you stayed right in the music industry even after that discovery. Yeah. So tell us more. What was what's the difference between consuming versus playing versus being in the music industry? I mean, it, it definitely is very different. I like both elements of the industry. So, and to me, the transition happened so smoothly and so gradually that I didn't even possibly notice. But most people would say they're a music fan. And a lot of people, other startups do come from, to me for advice and say, we've got an idea for, a, for a, a music startup. And I would say 99 out of 100 other startups I get pitched, it's either like an illegal use case of audio or there's or there's no demand. Like it's a it's a really I'm like oh or it's been done before and didn't work. And you know sometimes you know that doesn't mean you can't rework it. But just because you like to listen to music does not mean necessarily you understand enough to start a music tech company. But there is some crossover. I mean, if you start by loving music and you want to work in music, that's a, I think that's a really admirable goal. I do think though you need to be a little bit cautious because as I say it's still work. Like I think a lot of people think, I don't know, maybe it's going to be like hanging out at like parties and meeting famous people. And I don't really get to meet any famous people. It's kind of a a work, it's a job like any other, apart from it's in the music industry. So I've sort of become passionate about it over the years. And I actually love the industry side of it as much as I love being a fan of music, but it is two different experiences. What are some myths and misconceptions about the music industry? Yeah, I'm trying to be like, right, what's a myth and then what's actually true? Um, So, yeah, I think one of the myths would be that you would get to meet a lot of famous people. I feel like since I started Museo three years ago, I don't think me or anyone on the team has got to meet or interact with any sort of famous artists. Obviously, we work on their their catalogs via their labels and publishers, but there's not a huge element of that to it. It's also a misconception, although I would say the industry's changed a lot. I have been working in music for the last 15 years, but I was specifically at Universal, a major label, 10 years ago. But that was really at the end of the golden era. You know, so back when in the 80s and 90s, when the labels sold everything on cassette and then they resold everything on CD and they were just making money hand over fist, they couldn't stop making money. And so I've I've heard that it was all, you know, sort of cocaine and hookers back in those days. But I joined much later. I joined when there wasn't a lot of money going around and and digital was was on the up, streaming was launching. So those misconceptions about what you might see in a, a, I don't know, like a music autobiography like Motley Crue or, or what you might see in a film like Almost Famous, like none of those perceptions are true anymore. It's just a, generally a bunch of good people doing good work. So 
that's uh that's yeah but maybe maybe i don't know back in the 80s and 90s it was more of a party but now it's just kind of like a, a regular job regular job bunch of good people doing good work now that, that I think about it, the movies doesn't really put music industry in a good light, right? They're always all like, the artist is always a hero. Yeah. The music industry is always just like cheating them or bamboozling them or taking advantage of them or preventing the artistic freedom from happening. Actually, yeah. And you, you make a good point as well, which is the industry, the traditional industry, the, the model used to be different. It used to be that very few artists succeeded. And those artists that did made a lot of money, but the labels made even more money. Like we've definitely seen a more like a democratization of the industry. Now artists can have more control over their own career. They probably wouldn't sign deals like the 360 deals that used to exist where the label have the majority of the control. That's the classic trope in the film. But it also reminds me of back when I was like 15 and I was like playing in a band in my hometown. And one of the local promoters, uh, I said, oh, I really want to be on this this lineup. Like you've got this like, well-known band coming to town. I want my band to support. And he was like, sure, I'll put you on the lineup. Tell me which of the other two bands you want me to kick off and I'll do it. And I was like, oh, like I knew people in both of those other bands. Like it was a great score for them. And I was like, Cat, no, I'm not, I'm not willing to, to do it if it means you have to kick someone else off. He said, you know, you'll never get anywhere in this industry by being nice. And I was like, watch me. <laughs> pretty much not exclusively, but that was, I was 15. I'm 37 now. I've pretty much spent the last X amount of years proving that that guy's wrong, that you actually, <laughs> yes, there are a lot of awful people in every industry. And there are a lot of people who think you do have to stand on other people to get to where you want to get to. I personally don't believe that's true. I believe that good people can do good things. Ever since I was 15 and I refused to kick anyone off that lineup, not interested in destroying anyone or trampling over anyone to be successful. And that's kind of what I hope for the future of the industry as well. Oh, amazing. Well, I feel like one of those two bands, you probably know which one you would have if you put a gun to your head. <laughs> and I feel like that person has to like, owes your blood debt. I don't know, maybe they're super successful now or something. Not just like, and to be fair, like if the two bands that I was told they could kick one of them off, like one of them had a really close friend of mine in and I would certainly never have done that to him. But then on balance, like I knew the other guys as well. And yeah, like as I say, as soon as you start viewing it through a lens of who do I like and who do I want to judge, then you're not being fair. I would hate to have to kick anyone off that show. And I don't have the gig right now. So no, I'm not losing anything. Whereas I make someone else lose something so I can gain. That's not a deal I would make. And it was not a deal I wanted to make at 15. And even now when it comes to, to business deals, I wouldn't do a deal like that now. And it's interesting because, you know, back that time, there's a scarcity of playtime. Mm. There were only that art in that concert for the people in that room. There's only space for them to hear those three bands play and nobody else. Yeah. And you just kind of shared a little bit about it, which was you talked about the democratization of that where, and you talk about the digitalization of the music industry where everybody can listen and there's no longer the scarcity. You know, I could fire up right now and put up a playlist of 12 different bands playing one song each. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which would never have happened in the past because, you know, the band would have to mm. travel here, play, you know, the whole set. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's no way you could have gotten like 12 of those guys, different bands of those different types 
from across the world into the room. Takes too long to change the equipment over. <laughs> That's why you have a, a limit on the number of bands. It would take too long. But yeah, um, the industry's changed massively. Now we have streaming on top of live shows, merchandise, record deals, videos, celebrity endorsements, you name it. It's a more, an artist can put a career together out of more parts of, of the industry these days, sync, licensing music for like advertising and film. But it was funny because back in the day, and, and this is probably why I'm not a musician and why I now work in the industry, I used to love to play live. I would love to play a show, but I there's a lot of the rest of it that I don't get a huge kick out of. I don't particularly love recording in the studio. I don't particularly like, there's so much waiting around when you're in a band. Like my brother was in a more successful touring band and I would quite often go on tour with them and like, work the merch stand and like sell the t-shirts and you're rocking up at a venue at midday and then sitting around waiting around for them to set up then they do a sound check then there's like more waiting around for like four hours till the doors open then the, the first band's on then the second band then the third then the headliner and so like you're you can be hanging around from like midday till midnight 12 hours in a venue for 30 to 45 minutes of actually playing so you've got to really want to do it because that waiting around is a little tedious. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't show up in the movie at all, like the waiting for... <laughs> <laughs> they don't show the waiting around. That would be a terrible movie, probably. <laughs> it's in real time. It's 12 hours of, of uh, nothing and uh, 45 minutes of, of playing. But yeah, no, it's they don't, they don't show that side of it. And I'm a bit of a workaholic and a doer, so I really... The, the concept of just standing around, you know, is like not super appealing to me. But I do love to play live. That bit's fun. What's interesting is that I felt like you've been part of that digital part of it from so early. You were at Shazam all the way back in 2007. Mm. And I feel like 2007, Shazam was just getting started, honestly. I mean, I remember downloading Shazam for my phone and I was just mind blown that it could detect some songs. I could never, eventually they had a feature where you could sing into it and they'll find a song and I was just never on tune enough for it to discover any song I knew. <laughs> but it's kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah, so actually, I don't think Shazam ever had the sing feature. You would probably mean Soundhound, which was our biggest competitor. Ah, yes, I use both. Yeah, yeah. and actually Soundhound was more popular in Asia, bizarrely. So when I moved here, everyone use Soundhound as much as they use Shazam. But say in the UK where I'm from, Shazam was definitely the predominant. But interestingly, the Shazam technology could always do the sing into the phone and guess, but the accuracy is so low that Shazam made the decision that it's a better product if you can only play it real music and it gets it right like 99.9% .9 of the time. Whereas then if you add singing, it's going to a lot of the time. They kind of made that as a product decision, which is interesting. But also, funnily enough, like you say, 2007 is also the year the first iPhone was released. And I've probably been working at Shazam maybe sort of six to nine months before that happened. And so I worked for Shazam before smartphones existed. I think the phone I had at the time was like a Sony Ericsson. And so they had like a real keyboard, like little buttons. If you wanted to text, you had to triple press to get like a C or something. So writing cat, it'd be like one, two, three, one, and then T, whatever that is. That was texting back in the day. I haven't done it for 10 years, but that's how it used to work. So if you wanted to use Shazam, it was UK only. And you used to have to dial the four numbers down the middle of the phone, which 2580. So I, when I started at Shazam, it was called Shazam. 
2580 and you dialed the number, held up your phone for 30 seconds and you would get an SMS, a text back with the name of the song and the, the artist and title. And then, of course, that was UK only. We had about 30,000 users. And then as soon as the first iPhone came out and we launched an app that was live in the App Store, all of a sudden it went from small UK-based startup to globally recognized music tech company. And we went from the first office was like in a disused 50s hospital in, in Kensington in London. And then after the iPhone came out, and we were a global company. We moved into a proper office in, in Hammersmith in London. So that was nice. But yeah, being a part of that company from like, I think I was about employee number 25. And then by the time I left, there was about 200 people, maybe a bit more. That was a really fun and exciting experience. And I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it right from when it was really small to all the success that they, they went on to have. And even now, a lot of my ex-colleagues are now part of Apple. And it's great to see them there doing really well. Amazing. What was it like joining Shazam? You made a bet in this crazy startup back before joining startups were cool or in the movies as well. Oh, why did you actually join this company? No, uh, there was no Google startup or Silicon Valley TV show back when I joined. But the way I like to think about risk taking, and this is true for everything, is I consider myself a calculated risk taker. What do I have to lose? What's the potential upside? And so, as I say, depending on who you speak to, like my lead investors, they're more risk adverse founders compared to a lot of other startup founders. I'm a little bit more conservative in my decision making. But then compared to, say, the average person from my hometown, I would be considered a huge risk taker. Look at me now. I live in Singapore. I live in Asia. I've got my own company. I do AI. That's insane for some people to think about. So it really depends on, there's a spectrum for risk, but it also depends on within which context. If you put me in a room full of founders and risk takers, I seem like I'm not a risk taker. You put me in a room with a bunch of people from my hometown, I probably do seem like a risk taker. So I always think about it like a calculated risk. And when I got the job at Shazam, I was before that I was working full time in HMV, the record store. And I just finished my degree and then I went full time at the store. And I really loved working in the record store. It's great fun. Got some friends for life from working there. But it wasn't, you know, I didn't want to stay in retail indefinitely. So I was just applying for all kinds of jobs. And so when Shazam came up and, and I interviewed and I got the offer, to me that was a no-brainer. And I was young enough, I think I was like 22 at the time, that I, you don't even think about the risk. You know, it's like, oh, it's a job. I got it. Let's do it. I'm just very lucky that it ended up being one of the successful startups. So I made kind of a good calculated risk on that side. How did you even run across Shazam as a company to work at? So, because I know it was in music, you were in music, but how did you hear it? Did you hear from a friend or someone tell you about it? Yeah, no, great question. And I was actually, while I was working at HMV in London, I think I said before, I applied for like 100 jobs over the course of a year and a half. The only one I actually heard back from was Shazam and got an interview. I knew if I could just get an interview, I could probably get the job. But when your CV is literally you've had one job and you've worked in retail, how do you convince anyone else to take a chance on you? I actually saw the Shazam job advertised on monster.co.uk, which was the predominant job platform in the UK when I was job hunting. I have no idea if it even exists. Maybe it's a massive global company these days, or maybe it doesn't exist anymore. But it was kind of the job. It was the place for jobs 
that before LinkedIn had, had really got the strategy. Every All jobs were just posted on monster.co.uk. And so I saw the job advertised, digital music encoder. It said all training would be provided. They just wanted someone with a music background. So I just sent in a CV. And luckily, one of the guys reviewing the CVs had previously also worked at HMV. And HMV, the record store, was known for hiring a certain type of person, music lover, extroverted. And so he said he saw my CV and went, oh, she'll be good fun. So I'm really grateful for Alan, uh, my my boss, Mr. Alan, who uh, spotted my CV and, and then they called me in for an interview. And I kind of thought if I could get an interview, I could show people that I could do it. But getting that first interview, that's the hardest part for sure. Wow. A lot of gratitude to Alan for spotting you and looks like you made the right call. What a legend. Love Mr. Alan. Great guy. (laughs) So what was it like? Must have been quite a ride because over those four or five years, you saw the company grow 10x, which is a very classic story Mm. of startups on hyper growth stage. So what was that like? It was great. And the things I remember most are, it was a good time. I love that saying, which is, you don't remember what someone said. You don't remember what someone did, but you remember how they made you feel. And so like, I just have a general feeling of happiness from that time. I was playing in bands still. I was more of an artist than I was on the biz side. Um, And so I was sometimes playing like four or five shows a week. I was managing a couple of artists in London as well, which was really fun. I remember stuff every Friday, Shazam used to have like free bagel breakfast. And it was just like the bag of the like five New York bagels. You go in the kitchen, toast it yourself and spread the butter and the jam on it. And it was like free breakfast on a Fridays. I remember that being just a a really nice memory. And I remember at the end of every month, we'd have drinks. And there used to be a guy who would mix cocktails and they were like so strong, they would knock your head off. And it was like, oh, careful if so-and-so's making the cocktails, like, oh, it's a bit strong. And he was like just very generous with his portions of vodka and gin. And then I remember we used to have a Nintendo Wii and we always used to play Wii tennis and Wii bowling at the end of month drinks. And there's a really lovely photo. And in this photo, it's me and the CEO of Andrew Fisher playing Guitar Hero against each other. And in the background is Katie McMahon, who went on to become the general manager of Soundhound. And Mr. Allen is in the back of the photo and he's now at, at Cobalt. And so it's a real kind of a who's who but way back in the day. And I think even Tomas is in the back of the photo and he now is a director of engineering at Facebook. So I love that a lot of the people I worked with have gone on to do great things. But more than anything, I just remember that we had a lot of really good times. And that that to me was was the highlight, the, the people, of course. And I got to ask, who won Guitar Hero? I think I did. But I think that's a little bit cheating because I'm rubbish at computer games. But... I actually play the, a real guitar and playing a real guitar gives you the coordination between both hands that you also need to play Guitar Hero. So I think I had like a little bit of an unfair advantage. And now you've asked me that question, I'm looking back and I'm like, oh, I should have probably lost on purpose. Like <laughs> <laughs> I was playing the CEO. I should have thrown the match. I'm like, maybe, yeah, maybe he, he looks back at the same memory and he's like... That Hazel, not cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think she probably thinks that you're cooler for beating, trashing him. It's always nice to have someone who has the guts to not throw the game, right? It's not like a dictatorship basketball game, you know? <laughs> I'm going to message him after this. I'm going to say, 
bet you won't even remember, probably, <laughs> but that's fine. So, okay, so there you are. You know, you have these four wonderful years seeing a company grow 10x that is effectively a startup. And then you go on to do a bunch of stints in a Universal Music Group, which is going back to the big guys, which was interesting. I'm sure you must have learned something there. And then you went into Pandora, which was another startup as well. So I'd love to hear about that story about what you learned from going back into the big music and then going back to Pandora. What was that like? Yeah, obviously because my first sort of proper career job full-time after leaving HMV was Shazam and I was there for four years, I got very into the way that you work within a music tech company, that you have developers on site, that you use planning products like Jira, that everyone is doing uh, their best job and nobody's trying to be cool or or meet famous people. Like that's a a really love the Shazam work environment. When I moved to Universal, um, and I took the job because I'd always wanted to work for a major label, like that was like a dream job. But I realized very quickly, and this isn't necessarily true now because this is 10 years ago, but they were not working in a modernized way. It was very much more old school. I remember we were still mailing out CDs for promo. And, you know, I remember once I was trying to find a, a photo of Lady Gaga to update the website and there was no central repository of images, which I'm like, for the biggest label in the world is ridiculous. Why do we have no version control? And so there was a lot of uphill struggles and a lot of uphill battles, but that was because the industry was right in the, the middle of a time of change. And so even though I did thoroughly enjoy it, and when I look back, I do have some good friends from the year that I worked at Universal. I did only stay a year and I did realize very much that the major label side of the industry was not the part of the industry that excited me or that I was interested in. So, of course, then when I started at Pandora, which again is a streaming service based in the US, but very much a tech forward company, I instantly felt straight at home again. Because that's exactly the kind of company I love to work for. Smart people, lots of musicians, passionate people. And so I really, obviously, I have no regrets. It's great to have done a major label for a year. But it definitely made me realize as well that I am a little bit more on the tech first side of things when it comes to music tech. So yeah, so that's kind of how I got there. And then after Pandora, I did work for BandLab Technologies in Singapore as well. And again, they had multiple brands at the time, all under one sort of blanket company. And at the time I worked there, there was like physical guitar retail, uh, Sweely, there was Mono, a design brand out of the US, and then there was BandLab, the app. And I enjoyed working on the app the most because that's the area that I love. Like, I mean, I play guitar. Of course, I like guitars. You know, guitar retail is fun. But when it comes to work, I love the tech side of things. I love the Android app. I love the iOS app. I love the web experience. That's the part of the industry that I'm particularly passionate about. Amazing. So what was it like at Pandora? I mean, it's still pretty early as at that time as well. I mean, they had already gotten some success around that time. I still remember that was almost pre-Spotify, really kind of like kicking in to me in my brain. It depends on which country you were in. So in the US, when I joined Pandora, it was already the biggest streaming service in America. It might still not be anymore. Or certainly Spotify was around, but Pandora was the number one that most people had heard of. They had like 80 million daily active users, which is an insane amount, but, you know, big country. When I joined Pandora, 
the US office had about 400 people. But by the time I left, two and a half years later, they had about 800. So they did go through a huge growth cycle. But instead of the Shazam small to big, they went from big to bigger, that kind of story. But because I was one of the team that joined to help them launch in Australia and New Zealand, we were a team of three originally. So I was one of the first employees trying to help with the global expansion, which was great because it meant that when I went over to the Oakland office, I got to go out for lunch with Tim Westergren, the founder. And I'm like, I'm a huge fan of his. I love his story. I love his background. I love his approach to the industry. And he certainly, as a figurehead for music streaming, took a lot of flack because he came from the artist side and he was trying to promote obviously a new business model and a new way of, of doing things. And like with even streaming to this day, not everyone's on board with it. I mean, those people are wrong, but not everyone's on board with it. So to do what he did, I think is just absolutely phenomenal. And, and now I'm a founder myself. One of the things I also understand and love about Tim's story is when he first started as one of the founders of Pandora, he started as a founder, then he became the CEO. But then by the time I joined, they had brought in this other CEO guy called Joe Kennedy. And Tim moved into like a a chairman role. And I was like thinking at the time, why would he give up being the CEO? Why wouldn't he want to be like the top job? And now I'm a CEO. I totally would love to bring someone else in to manage it because CEO is short for like head of sales and head of investor relations. And if you can bring in like a a really top finance guy to do that for you, that's a good idea. I mean, it's just a title. I would be happy to have someone else come in and be the CEO if I could just do all the music stuff and all the invest, uh, all the industry relations. So I remember thinking at the time, oh, that's weird that he gave that up. But now I'm a founder. Totally get it. Uh, what was your impression of him during those lunches in Sydney in Australia? Yeah, I'm just such a huge fan. I'm a huge Tim Westergren fan. And I just remember it was so funny as well. It's hard not to be a little bit starstruck by one of the massively successful music tech startup founders, even Obviously, the, we've joked a little bit about the TV show Silicon Valley. The guy, the double comma guy, he, I guess he, the guy who's a billionaire, and he's always like, what's ROI? And the guy's like, return on investment. He's like, wrong. Radio on internet. And he's like, I invented ROI. Like, that's the joke. But Tim Westergren did invent radio on internet. So it's kind of, I'm working with the radio on internet guy. And shows like Silicon Valley are not directly name-checking Tim, but the archetype is there. He's the guy that, that brought this to, to the public, like a, a totally different uh, part of the industry. I remember when I went over to Pandora to do the training for a week, Tim would walk in and sort of speak to everyone who joined that week. And they were onboarding huge amounts of people, like 50 people would sit in on the session a month. And a lot of other people would like stop him for photographs, for autographs, just to shake his hand. He definitely had that celebrity vibe, but he was also just generally very lovely and cool about it. So yeah, what can I say? I was and I'm a big fan. Amazing. And I think this is an interesting part, right? So you've been transitioning between the UK and Sydney and you decided to make the move to Singapore to join BandLab, which makes sense. Again, you know, you're just joining for the job, the opportunity to work on another startup and a growth side and then even more of a senior and executive leadership role. And then at some point you're like, 
I want to be a founder, right? <laughs> and I'm going to join entrepreneur first. <laughs> so, so that's an interesting choice that you make. So why is that? Yeah, although it didn't totally go like that. So I was working at BandLab and previous to Musio, I was always like a marketer. So like a head of marketing or from people's social media, their press, their um, ad spend, you know, very much on the marketing side of all of the companies I've worked for. That's the work I really love and enjoy. And when I resigned from BandLab, I just so happened to get a call. Would I like to go in and have a coffee with these guys at Entrepreneur First? I thought like, oh, one day I'll start a company, but I'm waiting to have an idea. And one day it'll just like come to me and I'll be like, boom, let's start a company. Turns out it doesn't really work like that. So I went to meet EF for a coffee and they were like, oh, you're just such the perfect candidate. You've got huge domain expertise in one particular vertical. You could easily be one of our founders. And I was like, oh, great. Let's do it. Let's give it a go. And it turns out you can workshop your way to an idea. You don't need to have a fully formed idea come to you in a dream. You can research the parts of the industry that you know. You can workshop ideas based on the challenges that you know exist within an industry. And then you can start to build something and see if there's any interest in it. So I'm kind of glad that I met the EF team because I wouldn't have come up with a random idea like this just out of nowhere. I met my co-founder and we were able to get workshop it together. But I, So I'm glad they came along when they did. But also, I always thought maybe I'd start a company one day. But I still don't think of myself as a traditional entrepreneur in that sense. I have a friend who runs a great company in Singapore called Superbase. It's like an open source Firebase solution. And this is like his third startup. The previous one, he was like the CTO of a cleaning company. Previous before that, it was he was in logistics and delivery. And I'm like, wow, this guy's done three startups. They're all completely different. And he, I consider him a true entrepreneur, couple if you're watching, because he just sees the opportunity and he builds in that space. And I'm like, that's usually what entrepreneurs do. They see an opportunity and they build in it. I don't consider myself a true entrepreneur because I will only ever be interested in doing stuff in music tech. I wouldn't care how big an opportunity was if it's not in this industry it's probably not the thing that I want to do. So I'm slightly different to your average founder uh, or entrepreneur in that sense. But I am still very glad that I met the team from EF when I did because it was perfect timing. Basically, you know, you've always had this long and deep passion for music and being comfortable with the industry and you being tempted <laughs> with cookies to join the founder side. <laughs> and also, you know, truth is, you know, you've been at three music startups before this as an early employee or as a market launcher. Mm. And so you very much always had that FaceTime with the founder. So, well, you kind of knew what you were going for anyway. Yeah, and I think you're right. I don't think I'd be a great corporate marketer. Like, I'm a very good zero to one. Like, you got nothing, you want something, you got no budget, I can do something. But I, I don't know that I would, you know, say, be that passionate about being the head of marketing for a 200-person team for, like, a massively established business. I'm sure I could, but the part I'm passionate about is the doing something with nothing. So tell us about what the problem is that you're solving at Museo that you founded. Yeah, sure. So it, it kind of starts with the core idea. And I found my notebook from EF. And on the very first page, I'd written, can a computer listen to music? That was my initial premise. 
And then I met with met up with my co-founder who was like, yes, technically it can. And then it was like, well, really, okay, if, if you can scale something like that, how can you actually use it? What can you do? And I always refer back to when I was working at HMV and I was working on a, a shift on a Sunday and I would put the, uh, the CDs on the shelf ready for sale on Monday because that's when all new music was released. On a busy week or an average week, there'd be like five CD singles. That's a very manageable amount of music. And now you have streaming services saying they have 60,000 new tracks a day. So how do we go from there's now more music released every single day than used to come out in a whole year? Therefore, we need better ways to automate that data. We need better ways to understand the tracks that we have and the various things we might want to do with them. So at its very core, we're a data processing company. It just so happens that the data that we process is music. Amazing. And what was it like founding it from zero to one? You shared that you're strong in it, but what was it like? Because now you're on the other side of the table, right? You've been hanging out with all these founders multiple times, and now you're the founder. What was it like getting out from zero to one? That's the part of it that I enjoy. I like having nothing and then making something happen. And because of my background in the industry, I was able to set up calls within the first week with a lot of my friends at the labels, a lot of my friends at various different music companies. And the first thing you're just doing is you're just sounding out, hey, I'm going to build this thing. What do you think? Hopefully you've done enough favors for that person in the past and been a good enough person that A, they want to take your call and B, They'll give you some honest feedback. They'll give you some an honest take on it. And you don't need to be building in music tech or you don't need to be have as much industry experience as I do. But you've got to be willing to get on that phone and find out if the thing that you're building is of interest. Because what you don't want to do is build in isolation. I do give this advice to new founders as well. Like A lot of people are building stuff where there's no demand. And product market fit... I think is the number one killer of all businesses. It's either product market fit or founder relations. They're the top two. I forget which way around it is. So you need to be able to get on with your founder. So again, try to be a good person. And then secondly, you need to be selling something that people want. So regardless of which industry you're in or what you're building, if you're not focused on those two things, then you will struggle with with success. Thanks for that. Well, kind of last question here before I begin the summary would be, could you share with us a time where you've had to be brave and overcome obstacles? Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about this one when you let me know about this question. And I think, again, I would put it on a spectrum a bit the way we were talking about risk as a spectrum. I think being brave is as well, because I remember when I was working at Shazam, I got offered the job with Universal Music and it was in Australia but I was living in London at the time. And I was like, okay, Universal have offered me a job. It's in Australia. They're going to relocate me. And I've never been to Australia. But I, and I was like, how bad can it be? Everyone speaks English. It should be fine. I speak English too. And loads of people go there on holiday and for gap years. So I figure it'll be fine. And then I was like, worst case scenario, if I really hate it, I can just come back. No move is really permanent. So I said, yeah, I've been offered a job in Australia. I'm going to go. And I remember a lot of people's first reaction is, that's very brave. I suppose it is, but it didn't really feel like that big a deal to me. So a lot of people said that was a very brave thing to do. Take a job with a bunch of people you've never met in a country you've never been 
and just uproot your whole life to go and do it. I mean, I was only 26. 26-year-olds can be brave if they want to be. But to me, that just didn't seem like a thing I had to be brave for because I just knew I could walk it back if I needed to. So I feel like to some people, that might be a brave thing to do. For some people who would never consider it. But then I thought an actual brave thing that I think I did. When I was nine years old, I used to be really into horse riding. And I was riding a horse one day in a horse riding lesson in my hometown. And the horse went crazy, ran off, threw me off. So I fell off the horse. It kind of bucked and threw me right off. And I landed right on a traffic cone with my arm protecting me. And I snapped my arm right in half. And I broke my arm. But I didn't know I'd broken it. And the teacher didn't know I'd broken it. So she was like, get back on the horse. You can't let this horse control you. You've got to take charge. So trying to hide the fact that I can't move my arm, I got back on the horse and I finished the lesson one-handed. And I was nine. So I think that was very brave. Also, maybe a little bit stupid. But that would be my favorite example of being brave. Just pushing through. Just getting on with it. Broken arm, back on the horse. Done. I love this story so much. Wow, Hazel, thank you so much. Just to summarize and paraphrase the three big themes that came up for me. Uh, I think the first that I really enjoyed was just obviously whole trajectory of how you discovered music in your family, growing up as a child, as a family member, as a, as a working professional, and how you transitioned to the music industry and shared about the personal experiences of not just being a consumer or artist of music, but also someone who's working in the music industry. And I'm glad we got to clean up some of the myths and misconceptions based on your personal discovery of the differences from those different angles. I think the second one, of course, is that you know I really enjoyed, I think, the piece around differentiating between the music as a startup, having your experience at Pandora, Shazam, and BandLab, all of which are brand names in the music industry, is really amazing because I think it's a great way to get that front view seat of you know, companies that are growing quickly and innovating on something that we take for granted. And it's just nice to remember what's it like to be employee number 25 and leave as employee 250. What's it like to hang out founders? What's it like to you know have pop culture reference founders and seeing that? mentality as well. And so there's a lot of great stories there. And the third thing that I really enjoyed was actually the bravery they talked about it. The one-handed nine-year-old girl on a horse finishing the lesson with a broken arm. Love that because I think that's, you know, personal intrinsic motivation to just throw your head up into what we now consider like crazy companies that we also are now household brand names. But, you know, at a time, you're just pushing on and throwing your head into the next tier or the next... I don't know what's the word, thing that people don't really understand and get and you're still doing it as a market launcher or as an early employee. So that's really amazing. And I think so many people will just get a lot from it to just be brave and pursue their passion in the music industry and to be a great founder one day. So thank you so much, Hazel, for sharing all of this. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's been a fun chat. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.